this is the moment when it all falls apart as you try to take off a face covering without pulling your hearing aids out. Um, I've taken my glasses off in preparation because normally what happens is the glasses go that way, hearing aids go that way, and uh, chaos results. However, it's, it's good to be with you again. Well, with some of you again, because uh, uh, some of you have come in, I gather, from uh, another congregation. It's a long time since I was here. Well, it seems a long time. Probably it is a long time. It must be well over two years, obviously. Um, but it's good to be back, and it's good to see that some change has uh, taken place. Um, and I tell you what's particularly good. I love it when something comes together. Uh, and this morning, without any collusion or contact between speaker and worship leader, we've had a set of songs that have just fitted in so well with what I believe God wants us to uh, look at this morning. And I just love it when that happens, because you, you think, you know, here is God at work uh, leading his people in, in different ways. Uh, we're going to look this morning at uh, Isaiah 40. Um, I guess it's a chapter that uh, many of us will know pretty well. But the last uh, couple of years have seen uh, a lot of change one way or another. Uh, they've been difficult years, they've been challenging years, uh, and they, if nothing else, have given rise to certain fears and concerns uh, among people. I, I often think that the, the primary narrative around the whole pandemic promoted by the media and promoted by the government, has been one of fear. And actually, I believe as God's people, we have a different story to tell, which is a story of hope. Um, we'll come to that in just a moment. But that's one factor. But as we know, there are many factors in our own lives which bring challenges, uh, which bring fear, which bring anxiety. There are many things on the world scene that do just the same. And Isaiah 40 speaks into that sort of situation. It's a fairly long chapter, but uh, we're going to take the risk of uh, reading it all. Uh, I did contemplate cutting out bits, and I thought, actually, it's all too good to cut anything out, so let's just go for the whole thing. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. 
See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, it is a great chapter, isn't it? And especially when you come to those last verses. And I guess most of us will uh, uh, have known them for years and uh, 
uh, finding them a great source of strength. Let's just go back and look at the background to what's going on here. Uh, these words uh, of Isaiah are addressed to a situation long after his own time. They're addressed to a point when Israel, having been in exile in Babylon as a consequence of their rebellion and their sinfulness and their idolatry and, and their oppression of the poor, they're coming to the end of that time. And God is now saying to them, look, the time has come to head back to your own land. That's where this comfort, comfort my people, says your God, comes in. Here is God doing something new. And with all the sort of situations that they face, and with all the situations that we face, God wants to speak into that uh, a word of encouragement and uh, a word of comfort. I guess as they looked at the situation, here they are, they're in Babylon, they're 800 miles away from home, it's a tough journey back. They probably looked at it, and they thought, how can this happen? And actually, as you read the chapter, you, you see hints of that coming out in the reaction of the Israelites. How can we get back there? Who will actually release us from this captivity? To some extent, they've perhaps forgotten some of the history uh, when God took them out of Egypt way back in the beginning. But there would have been questions there. There would have been uncertainty there as there are for many of us, as we face personal pressures, as we face international confusion, as we face the pressures of the pandemic. But what Isaiah wants us to understand is that in the middle of all of this, God reigns. So, I think three things I want to bring out this morning, there are so many more we could. If you want an overall title, it might come from verse 9 here is your God. Three things. First thing is that this God, our God, is a gracious God. You see, how does he start out? He starts out by proclaiming forgiveness for the people. All their rebellion, all their self-centeredness, all their idolatry, he says, that's gone. That is forgiven. The hard service is completed. The sin has been paid for. And now they can enter into a, a new era with God. It wasn't what they deserved, but it's what God does for them in his grace and in his love. Now, of course, for us, that takes on a whole new meaning because for us, we experience the grace of God in a much fuller way in the face of Jesus. And uh, when Isaiah has to say to these people that, uh, that her sin has been paid for, well, for us, of course, that takes on a totally new dimension because we don't have to pay for it. They have paid for it with 70 years of exile in Babylon. We don't have to because Jesus has done that. So right at the heart of all this, there is this gracious promise of God. And, uh, of course... Isaiah was looking forward to the return from exile, but he's looking even further forward to the coming of Jesus. And we know the way in which uh, these verses are picked up at the start of the Gospels. Uh, we know the way in which uh, Handel, in his oratory of the Messiah, sort of picks them up. I, I have the words sort of ringing in my ears uh, as I speak. Um, and for those of you who uh, know and love classical music, you, you'll, you'll understand that. There's something very powerful about the way in which Handel picks those up 
and, and links them in with that whole story uh, of uh, the Messiah coming and bringing deliverance. Uh, and then you have in John 1, you know, we beheld him full of grace and truth. You know, the law came by Moses, but grace comes by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, at heart, our God is a, a gracious God. And uh, Paul so often comes back to that, and he signs himself off in his all his letters, wishing the grace of God upon the people. And as we face pressures and trials and challenges, what we hold on to is the fact that we have a gracious God. And we have a God who has our interests at his heart. We don't have a remote God. We don't have a distant God. We have a God who is intimately involved with the lives of his people. I had a, an email correspondence uh, this week with uh, one of the members of our own church, Tal Kiln Church, back in Chelmsford. <coughs> He's uh, a man who spent uh, much of his life um, as a GP. He also served as a doctor in the foreign mission field. He lost his wife some years ago and has struggled with depression uh, ever since. Uh, and uh, in one of the, the emails he said, you know, I have just struggled over the last few weeks to make any connection with God at all. But this morning I woke up, as I normally do at three o'clock, and I just felt loved. You know, that's our God. Yes, there will be times of struggle, but then a light breaks through and something new happens. And, and when these people complain and they wonder, and when they say, my way is hidden from the Lord, he comes with reassurance because he meets them in grace. And, and, and this grace of God, this, this love which he has for his people, means that he wants to act on their behalf. He wants to do something for them. But then, the second thing here, uh, and this perhaps is a little bit uh, more unexpected, I want to say that our God is a gentle God. Now you may think, well, surely that's not entirely the case. But then, look at what Isaiah says here. He talks about God bringing comfort uh, in verse 1. He talks about um, speaking tenderly in verse 2. And then in verse 11, we have this picture of he turns his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And, and we've seen that in some of the songs we've sung this morning, haven't we? We, we sang, uh, The Lord's My Shepherd, uh, based on... Uh, Psalm 23. And this is a theme which comes out again and again in Scripture. God has this gentle side about him. And this side that meets us <coughs> where we are. This side that doesn't deal with us harshly, but deals with us gently. And of course we see this supremely in the person of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. I have come to bring this sense of uh, comfort and peace to you as my people. And out of that comes this, this gentle touch. 
What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. That's our God. A God who meets us at our point of need, and does it with a gentleness and a tenderness. Or, think of the way in which Matthew picks up other verses from Isaiah uh, and, and sees them as a fulfilment uh, in Jesus about not breaking the bruised reed about not putting out the smoking flax smoking candle our God when our faith is weak when we are struggling comes to us the gentleness and the tenderness and uh, speaks that into our situation it's not just that he doesn't blow out the smoking candle he nurtures it into flame just as Paul encouraged Timothy to uh, fan into flame the gift that he had been given so God fans into flame the gift of new life that he's given us so here they are confronted with all the challenges of getting back to their homeland again and all the difficulty that surrounds that. And God reminds them that he's a gracious God and he wants to act on their behalf. He reminds them that he's a gentle God and he will come alongside them and will lead them as a shepherd leads the sheep. As a shepherd gathers the young lambs in his arms. And sometimes, uh, <coughs> if you're watching Country File, you'll, you'll see the way in which shepherds sort of... Uh, get alongside, particularly at the time when a lamb is being born, and, and the intervention there, and the care. Um, one a couple of weeks ago, I think, where um, there, there was a young lad, I don't know, what, 10, 11, who was just helping deliver a, a lamb with his father. And you just see something of that tenderness and that care. That's our God. The God who cares and does it tenderly. But they still might have said, well, that's all very well. But it's still a tough journey. It's still a long way. We're still controlled by the Babylonians. How is this going to happen? Well, the answer is that our gracious God, our gentle God, is also a great God. And all the power uh, belongs with him. They needed reassurance right then. They needed to know that God not only wanted to do it because he was gracious, but could do it because he was great. And, And... So much of this chapter then goes on just to explore the way in which God's greatness is seen in creation. He leads out the starry host. He names the starry host. And I don't know how many stars uh, Isaiah thought there were, but we know there are billions of them. An uncountable number. All of that created by, sustained by, controlled by, named by our God. So Isaiah wants us to see this whole point of God's greatness in creation. But he also wants us to see that uh, this God, uh, his greatness endures in his word. You see, the word of the Lord endures forever, verse 8. He's a faithful God. We sang about it. When we call out, he comes. He meets us at a point of need. 
There's an eternity about God. He's not someone transient or temporary. He is always there, always faithful. His power endures. As I remind us of God's knowledge and God's wisdom, verse 13, who can instruct the Lord? Well, of course we can't, because his knowledge is so much greater than ours. As Isaiah says in chapter 55, his ways are not our ways, because his ways are higher than our ways. And yes, our understanding is always going to be limited, but his understanding is never limited, and his knowledge is never limited. And he knows what we face. And he understands what we face because he's a gentle God. And he can deal with it. Our knowledge, our wisdom may be fallible. But God's never is. And then he he looks at the the nations that seem so powerful. I I wrote a little article for Scripture Union's Encounter with God. Uh, Well, it appeared a few months ago. I wrote it lots more months ago, um, which originally was about the geopolitics of the ancient Near East, which is a rather sort of highfalutin title, and uh, I changed it to God and the Nations. Uh, But basically we looked at what was going on, all the power plays amongst the nations at the time. Egypt down in the south, Assyria up in the north, with Israel as just a small little insignificant buffer state in the middle, caught up in, in all of that. And we looked at the way in which Babylon then came in and defeated both Egypt and Assyria and took over. And then, of course, ultimately, and this is the answer to what uh, Isaiah is talking about, the Persians come in and Cyrus says, OK, you can go. That's how God does it. But the, all these nations who seem so powerful, who seem to have so much control, Isaiah says, you know what? Drop in the bucket. God is in control even of the nation. Now, hey, look, it may not always look like that. Let's be honest. There are times when we look at the world and we think, you know what? The whole thing is out of control. But it is not out of control. God has a destiny for the nations. You look at the end of Revelation. What happens in the New Jerusalem? The nations come into it and the nations bring their glory and their splendor into it. God loves the nations, all of them even the rebellious ones and he has a destiny and a goal for them oh yes evil has to be dealt with rebellion has to be sorted out but the nations are not the last word and the kings of the nations are not the last word because there is a king of kings and there is a lord of lords so when we look at a world that seems to be out of control we recognise that the nations are under his control and then he says, well, let's, let's think about some of these other gods that the other nations worship. Look at them. What are they? Someone cuts down a tree, shapes it a bit. Then they get a goldsmith to put a bit of gold on top. And they go, woo, woo. Uh, actually, they cut down the tree, they burn half of it, and they make an idol out of the rest. You know, how does that work? Isaiah just loves to, to poke fun at uh, the sort of practices of people where half a tree they used to cook on and uh, make firewood and warm themselves out of and the other half they worship. Sometimes, uh, we have to be careful of course, we don't want to uh, put people down, but sometimes a bit of humour can uh, really sort of help to communicate and get people 
thinking. And Isaiah wants people to think about, do these things have power? No, they don't. They're simply man-made gods. Whereas what Isaiah wants us to be is God-made men and women. The whole thing gets reversed. So he says, look, you know, they're nothing. And all those things that people worship, and they worship very different things in our world, all of those things are nothing. The careers that people worship, the income they worship, the houses they worship, whatever it is, count for nothing. So this is our God. Here is our God, a gracious, gentle, great God. And he's one who can do it. And when these people struggled to see how they might get home, God says to them, look, I give strength to the weary. I increase the power of the weak. One of my favourite places is a a little chapel in the Swiss village of Wengen, a little Anglican chapel. Uh, There I've... uh, spoken there a number of times when we've been out there uh, with Oak Hall trips we, uh, we normally live in Alphabrunnen but we go up to Wengen one evening and we worship in the church there and behind the table there's a stained glass window which has on it a, a, an eagle in, in full flight uh, and you're there you're in the mountains and there is this eagle and it, it, it never fails to move me um, I shall be out there, hopefully, all being well, uh, next week. Uh, Again with the ski trip. Whether we shall actually meet in the Church of Wengen because of COVID, I I don't know. But um, nevertheless, it's a constant reminder for people who worship there that the God they worship is a God who lifts them, who can see them through. Is a God whom they meet in Jesus Christ and who offers them all that they need to deal with the fears, the anxieties, the concerns, the pressures, the challenges of life. They needed reassurance. Perhaps we need reassurance. Our situations are different. But perhaps in the middle of all of that, we need some reminder that God knows, cares, loves, and can deal with it. His grace says he wants to act. His greatness says he can act. So whatever it is that perhaps causes you to wonder, just give it to God. And say, you know what? I believe that you're the great God. The one who cares. The one who can deal with it. We had a discussion in our home group this week about, um, we were looking at 1 Peter. And we were in chapter 5, where I think it's verse 7, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, for many of us, that'll be a a favourite verse. But we recognised, some of us at least, that it's jolly hard. I find that when I throw my anxieties on Jesus, and it's a very powerful word, that one in 1 Peter, they're almost as though elastic. You know, I, I, I throw them off and they bounce back again. I throw them off and they come back again. And I can see from the nods and the sort of smiles I'm getting hidden behind masks that uh, you can identify with that. Of course we can, because we're weak and we're fallible. But it doesn't change the reality of God. And it doesn't change the reality of his ability to deal with it. Let's just take a moment in quietness to give to God 
perhaps any of our own particular concerns, anxieties, pressures, fears. Lord God, thank you so much that you're gracious, that you're gentle with us, but that you're great and that you have the power for every situation. Amen.